Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 41, Dr. Irving Finkel on the First Ghosts. I had the good fortune back in June to interview Dr. Irving Finkel regarding his book, The First Ghosts, which discusses ghost beliefs in ancient Mesopotamia. My good lady wife producer told me that uh, this is the most interesting episode she thinks I've recorded, so I hope that you enjoyed as much as she did. And without further ado, here's Dr. Irving Finkel. Thank you for your time this morning, I, or I guess afternoon for you. Yes, it is sort of tea time, in fact, yes. I have the good fortune today to be speaking with Dr. Irving Finkel, who is the author of The First Ghosts, Most Ancient of Legacies, which discusses Mesopotamian beliefs in ghosts. I work in the British Museum, and I've been there all of my adult life, and I'm what's called a philologist because I'm not an archaeologist. I read ancient inscriptions. And in the department where I work, uh, these inscriptions are all written on clay tablets in cuneiform script. And it's the culture of the Sumerians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. So that's that's what I do. It's a strange job, but I do it. Excellent. Now, uh, your doctoral dissertation, from what I understand, covered um, Babylonian exorcist beliefs against demons. So this book seems to be very much in line with where you started your career. Well, that is true. I had a very wonderful and exacting teacher, and I was, for most of my um, undergraduate and postgraduate days, his only student, so it was rather intense. And for my PhD, I, I made a study of a whole collection of incantations which are against evil spirits, evil demons, and it is the same general category of stuff, except that demons and and evil uh, sprites and devils and what have you are crucially different from what we refer to as ghosts and what the Babylonians refer to as ghosts because ghosts are dead human beings the people who once lived like you and I who died and whose bodies went wherever they went and their souls went wherever they went and those are ghosts so ultimately they are accessible to human thinking but the other lot demons and and wizards and um evil of this kind has nothing to do with the human race. In fact, their origins are rather obscure. And so having had a lot of experience about getting rid of them, it seemed a rational thing to have a look at the ghosts as well, which in their way can be quite a problem for human beings who are still alive. And one of the things that fascinated me, I think it was in the uh, afterword of your book, you actually discuss what essentially amounts to a formula for determining the difference between a ghost and a demon. Yes. Well, in Mesopotamian terms, it's rather straightforward because the signs with which the cuneiform signs with which the words for ghost and uh, demon are written in cuneiform have a crucial component of difference because what's left of a human being, a ghost, is one third of it is female divinity. So the other two thirds are blood and clay, which makes the, the body, so to speak. And then this other third is female 
divinity which animates the, the person as a human being. And the proportion of the female divinity with demons is actually higher, but the other ingredients, we don't know what they are. So when you look at the words on a clay tablet, it's a rather interesting thing that their difference in nature comes out of the actual writing itself. So out of curiosity, why did you decide to write this book at this point in time and rather than an earlier point? Well, the thing is this, the, the, the job that I have in, in the British Museum is remarkable in several ways, but one of the most remarkable is this, that we have something like 130,000 pieces of clay with this writing on it, cuneiform writing. They cover three millennia of time. So when I finished my thesis stuff, I got interested in lots of other things, especially the medicine of Mesopotamia, because there's a lot of information about how the doctors cured the sick. And it was only fairly recently that it occurred to me that ghosts are very interesting. And I know one or two people who've seen ghosts, although I never have myself. And I thought, why not try and put this stuff together into a single book with a sort of synthesis of what we know, which is surprisingly a lot, because the writing starts about 3000 BC or a bit before that, and it lasts all the way down to about the first century AD. So we've got nearly three and a half thousand years of records. And in that group, after about 2600 BC, something like that, we have increasing numbers of texts to do with ghosts. So I never really realized until I started to poke about, but actually there's a profusion of documents and they're not all the same. Some of them are, for example, if people saw a ghost, in their house or they woke up in the night or they saw in, 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 in the courtyard or something always a feeling it was bad news they were worried about it and the, the people who were experts in divination would say oh well if you saw such and such a ghost at such and such a time it means this and there was a long tradition that if you saw a ghost and it had bad luck implied then you get someone to help you with a, a kind of ritual that would send it away so there was all that and then there's other magical rituals for getting rid of ghosts altogether and how to write the amulets and what to do to banish them from the house and how to recognize them and there's also another fascinating thing which anybody in the modern world who finds ghosts interesting would find extremely useful there's a long list of all the types of human being that might be expected to be a troublesome ghost because in the normal run of things when people were buried they were buried and they stayed there and they had their um, offerings poured down through a thing down below and um, they were in the underworld so to speak and they were out of sight and out of mind to a large extent but the trouble is not all of them stayed there and just like in later cultures you have people who once buried their ghosts come back and cause more or less trouble for the people who are still alive upstairs so to speak and the thing about it, the really important thing um, about this, which came to me writing this book, and I'd never seen it with such clarity before, but it's compellingly clear to me now, that in this ancient culture in Mesopotamia, Sumerians and Syrians, what have you, you didn't have a world where individuals either believed in ghosts or didn't believe in ghosts. And that is what happens in the modern world. People are rather polarized. Some people swear blind they've seen ghosts and scientists and other people say it's impossible, I don't believe a word of it, and they never will the twain meet. But in antiquity, 
this dichotomy never existed because everybody from the king down to the humblest um, cobbler, so to speak, took ghosts for granted. They didn't believe or disbelieve. It was part of daily life. And this is a very significant thing to me because I have a conviction that when you look at the human, the human species in its history from the beginning up until now, that in the ancient world, and to a very considerable extent in the modern world today, there is a stratum where people still take ghosts for granted as part of their normal existence. But what happened was that this stratum at a certain point was overlaid with religion, especially monotheistic religion, and science. And these two forces suppressed the general ascription to the idea of ghosts, drove it underground, made it furtive and embarrassing, and opened it wide open for exploitation by commercial people and all the rest of it. So there's been a massive shift. So if you live in a sophisticated part of the world, like London or Manhattan, people are very, very blasé about all this kind of thing. But when you go out into the countryside in many parts of the world, you will find many people who still take the existence of ghosts totally for granted. And that is how it was, I think, in remote times. So when you understand that, it's not surprising that in the culture, there's all sorts of different writings to do with it. And the, the list of who might be a ghost is very excessive. So in our terms, somebody who died a violent death, I mean, you could imagine run over by a tractor, or killed on a, on a motorcycle or um, fell out of an airplane, all those sorts of things. They had their equivalents. Uh, you got bored, gored by a bull or crushed by a cart or died in battle or died in childbirth or any number of things. So the professional chaps who were in charge of this had a long list. So when someone had seen a ghost and was troubled by the ghost, they had a kind of technique for like a doctor. You know, they'd ask, can you describe the ghost? What did it look like? What did he say? And all this kind of thing. So they could pin down who it was. So these lists were a useful adjunct. If you were called in by someone who had a big problem with ghosts, um, you, the first thing would be to find out who they were and then you know the best way of dealing with them. So all these different sorts of documents that survive, they're all kind of to be taken at face value in a living culture. They're not as things might be in the modern world that someone would say, what a curious byway of life and how antiquated it was that people had these beliefs and how cute and so forth. It's nothing to do with that. It is to do with the reality of blood in the veins and real people who regarded this as part of being alive, that you had all this trouble. One of the things that I was very curious about in reading the book was, as you say, there were definitely ways to deal with ghosts that may be of danger to you, specifically uh, very often danger to your health. But was there any concept that you may have ghosts around who were just simply there? They weren't necessarily going to do you harm. Well, I think, yes, well, the, the, the best way to look at it is if, if, from the evidence of the inscriptions, you have weak minded and rather ineffective ghosts and you have, as it were, friendly and pleasant ghosts. Then you have unpleasant ghosts and then you have nasty ghosts and then you have sadists, Nazis and psychopaths. Mm -hmm. So you have a whole convenient span of human beings or rather of ghosts who reflect, I believe, 
the kind of person they are when they were alive. So if you were a horrible, malicious individual when you were alive, the chances are your ghosts will be the same. So that means that the, the offensive nature of them and the danger of them was very varied. But I think um, people in Mesopotamia, among other things, had the, this feeling that people often do in the modern world, that there's somebody over there, there's somebody watching them, there's somebody present. And that in the in passage of time, after a while, this feeling turned into certainty because they caught a glimpse of this ghost and then they saw the ghost and then the ghost might start moving in and always being there and uh, eventually have to be banished if possible. It makes me think about, uh, there's a uh, folklorist named David Hufford and he has this idea of core experiences, which are common experiences that people have, such as the feeling of being watched and how a lot of uh, folklore and even religious belief can form around these core experiences. Yes, um, I, th I think that is something that I am in tune with myself, to the point that I think the idea that human beings live with their dead and live with their ghosts, um, which we can trace already in this ancient society, has probably prevailed since the beginning of time among Homo sapiens, that, that the, the, the whole business of when a conscious being registers what death is and they know that the person who's died is never coming back and they have to bury them and, and look after them. And, and, and once that horizon among Homo sapiens distinguishes itself from the purely animal kingdom where burial is carried out by the major mammals and other animals as well, that when you have sort of a, um, a conscious thought that people are buried and sometimes they have to take things with them for wherever they're going when you have that sort of horizon which appears quite early even among neanderthals and, and, and as well as early homo sapiens and of course ever after the idea of putting something in a grave with a dead person means it was we're conceived to go somewhere when the body was rotten and, and, and of no use any longer and it always seems to me that if you have an idea that an invisible part of your uncle can go whoosh, out of his ear when when he was dead then there's no reason why it shouldn't go whoosh, come back again as well so i think that the idea that you mentioned applies especially to the belief in 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 ghosts and the, and the visibility of ghosts because i think it's really hardwired into a homo sapiens mind and it's one of the deep deep matters which is unites all living human beings and is hidden and sometimes suppressed but is nevertheless there, and in, in my opinion, probably always demonstrable by the simple device of, as I often said in lectures, you get a house in the middle of Dartmoor in the middle of winter, and you get 12 Nobel Prize winning scientists who don't believe a word about ghosts, and you have a party in the winter, and everybody gets into bed and goes to sleep, and then you climb up the back, open a window, and go... <laughs> through the dark house and they will all i believe wake up suddenly and wet themselves in panic because underneath underneath they have inherited from the beginning this idea and it's to do with the identity of a human being and the impossibility really of a sentient specimen really coming to terms with the fact that they have to die it's not coming to terms with the fact that you're beloved has to die, that's a whole different thing. It's to do primarily with self. And the human being is an arrogant animal. And the more attainments it claims, the more arrogant it becomes. And so this is even more steadfast in the construction of, 
of their psychology, in my opinion. But I think it is a, that it is something that if people deny it, they have to suppress it. And of course, if you say at a party you believe in ghosts, people look at one another and they think, you know, what kind of crackpot is this? Unless all the people have had some similar experience, in which case they're rather glad to have opportunities to talk about it. It's a complicated thing. But the idea that you could take 20 different people from all around the world or from all periods of history and look for the things which they share in common as essential human matters, this will be one of them. This would, I think, be one of them. Well, certainly uh, my training is in North American anthropology and archaeology and ghost beliefs are very different, but they are nonetheless very much present. Yeah. So it's something I see quite a bit. I mean, and I live in California. We have a very large Mexican immigrant population. And are you familiar with the Day of the Dead uh, celebrations? Oh, yeah. I was really struck by the similarities between those and the um, offerings, the grave offerings made that uh, you describe in the book. Yes, of course, if you have a day of the dead, that means you don't have to worry about it most of the time. But in Mesopotamia, yeah. the oldest son was supposed to make offerings rather regularly for the ghosts of his grandfather. And um, of course, people got fed up or they forgot. And it's then that the grandfather, who's supposed to be lying down peacefully with his hands behind his head in the netherworld, thinks it's a long time since I had any nice water. And then they start coming and... Uh, uh, interfering that, that actually brings in one of the things that i uh thought was quite interesting in this you describe a couple of poems that give a description of the netherworld each of which is about a goddess descending to the netherworld and the, the description they give of the netherworld just is absolutely miserable but you make a comment in the book that it's entirely possible that the common people didn't necessarily hold that specific set of views but might have had a different conception of the netherworld, whereas this might have represented a literary or maybe even official religious view. Yes, that's a very important question. Um, I think the, the whole business about the underworld, what it looked like, and this goddess Inanna going down to rescue her lover, and the picture that's created and the, and the related texts, they are traditional inherited forms of, I suppose, a kind of mythology, because it concerns gods and um, and, and divine beings and it's part of a whole cycle of things which represent a strongly literary form of tradition so your, your question about whether this is separate from what normal people believed i think must be the case um, for two reasons one is this that the description of the underworld is very very gruesome because it's kind of dark and i think damp and the dead hang around in a gloom rather like a load of penguins sort of shuffling around in the dust. And there's a shortage of water. There's a shortage of space and things to consume. They have to eat clay and mud and everything. And it's altogether not a good place for a holiday. And the curious matter about the netherworld in the literary text is that when you read about it, the inhabitants who are there appear to be waiting for something. And because of the description, it seems to be they're in a gloomy place hanging around from then on. And human beings, when they hang around from then on, um, in another way of looking at it, are waiting for something. You have to consider, if that is the case, what are they waiting for? Now, they didn't have any business in Mesopotamia, the, the, the ancient populations of ancient Iraq. They had none of that hanky-panky about heaven and hell or about punishment after death 
the things you did when you were alive. They didn't have any of that stuff. It's a great benefit, I think. I think they they were a wicked innovation in the history of the world. Those things to punish people afterwards for things they did before, like that. Anyway, they didn't have any of that nonsense, and. So when they were down there waiting, it wasn't they were waiting to go to heaven or waiting to um, be punished. It was a different thing. So that is one, one, one interesting dimension. And I have an idea how that is to be explained, but that's a separate thing. So it, it's a rather amorphous and unpleasant future. And you could imagine, looking at it rationally, that if you subscribe to the un traditional underworld thing for mystery sources if you were a ghost you wouldn't want to stay there either i mean the right. first thing you do would be to get the hell out of there and so this is an uncomfortable thing but the second point is that when you look at people have people having their graves with increasing obviously it starts off small but of course you have royal graves things like the tutankhamun with chariots and, and lord knows what else of stuff but and then you have small domestic versions but the principle is that the the, the dead are equipped with things that they will need in the world to come and the implication of it is that they will be living somewhere where those things will be useful because if you give someone a complete as it were dinner set with cutlery for use in the next world and they didn't have any requirement for that stuff that would be foolish so they obviously had the idea although it wasn't very clear that it wasn't like the thing in the literary sources that had some other overtone of gravity, which I don't think in normal life was um, was present. But of course, nobody knew. It's like all other religions, they're a bit shaky about all this because nobody has been there with a tape recorder and come back. So they have a kind of tacit way of referring to certain things that, that the dead are definitely down there. They need to have food and drink, as I said, a supply to them regularly and their names have to be mentioned, they have to be kept alive in the family. And when that happens, they're fine where they are. And I think the normal relief, the, the normal belief for normal people in that culture, when somebody was dead and buried, is a bit like us today, that when some you go to the funeral, you bury the body, you don't see them again, and you don't know exactly where they are, but that it's something closer to that. And the great literary structure of this, go through the gates all the way down to the underworld, and, and see all the people there hanging about, I think is a literary matter which has its origins in quite a different requirement. Now, one of the things is this, that the story of Inanna or Ishtar is a rather wonderful one because she has a lover called Dumuzi. And that must be the story you're talking about because she goes down to heaven through the seven gates, right down there where her sister Ereshkigal is in charge. And she's gone down to rescue this Dumuzi who's trapped and to bring him up to the surface. And that is a literary structure with lots of detail in it. And it's something to do with cultic requirements and the status of this goddess. And it doesn't necessarily reflect much to do with what normal people believe in their normal lives. The only thing is it's from this literary stuff these underworld descriptions that we find out about the gates and when you combine the gates with the fact that everybody down there appears to be waiting the in inevitable conclusion is that they're all locked in because if you read it that's how it looks they go down there they they go through the gates and they're they're there interminably waiting like for a train to edinburgh from king's cross which is four hours late 
hanging around and hanging around and nobody quite knows why but they're locked in so the general idea among the seriologists is that they were locked in out of the way so they couldn't come up and torment people but i think there's more to it because there are some rather extraordinary esoteric texts in babylonian written um, they, they had a kind of university in the third century or so bc in babylon where very learned people ran classes in astronomy and astrology and medicine and they studied the classics and they had classes for like grad their graduate students so to speak advanced students where they read together difficult texts and discuss what they meant because sometimes the inscriptions might be many many hundred years older with obscure vocabulary so we can see from these remarkable documents that there was a, a guy as it were at the front who went through these difficult texts with his students and explained that this means this and this means this in a very remarkable way quite sophisticated stuff anyway one or two of these texts give the impression of the following that they had an underwriting conception in mesopotamia that life was finite that's to say the material which animated flesh and blood to become a human being was not inexhaustible it was finite and i believe this to be related to their dependence on waters of the euphrates and tigris rivers which gave them their life and, their, and irrigated their canals and when it was going fine it was fine but if anything happened they were on a knife edge and they were always aware of the vulnerability of that and also that water and life were precious not like in dr strangelove but that sort of idea no worries about fluoride yeah exactly that's i love that film uh, the other thing about it is it's so relevant today that's the other everybody should watch that film. anyway that's neither here nor there that the corollary of the idea that um, the life force was finite is this that i believe they had a conception that for a new baby to come into the world somebody had to die that there was not enough stuff to just have new babies endlessly that it required the death of an old person or a sick person and then that element would then animate a new baby who would start crying so th this um, sort of idea meant that there was a cycle of the life life material and i believe that the business about people being locked down there was so that when one was needed one could be released because you open the gate they'll all come out like a load of football hooligans and roar up the staircase and that will be hopeless so it had to be controlled so when a life was needed then somehow or other officially it could be done and a new baby would come into existence so i think that, that circular conception underpins a fair number of rather elusive things that these scholars wrote about and i think that's correct and it's actually a very powerful matter in our modern world when you think of so many people end their lives uncertainly and in pain and hanging on against all odds with tubes coming out of them in every direction and unable to speak to anybody that people in that position and i'm sure it would apply to me that if you thought that by relinquishing your hold on your tentative life once and for all a brand new baby would come into being would give you a lot of comfort it's a very um satisfactory feeling but it doesn't mean that they had an idea of reincarnation which is a whole different thing they believed i think in the, the warm the raw material in that sense 
as being the precious resource which went through this kind of cycle. So if that is correct, it's a rather interesting matter. And of course, it does mean that in some respects, um, they have a conception of the soul, which is not unlike the later conception of the soul. But there are lots of other things. One of the choicest things about is bringing up the dead when you want to ask them a question. And if you saw that a bit in the book, I love this. There's a whole manual that belonged to a necromancer. And this is a de dead dodgy thing to do, of course, because most of the magic, the rituals and the spells and the amulets are to get ghosts to go back where they belong and stay there. And then you kind of nail them down. That's the whole idea. That you don't want these things coming back. But there are some magical passages where a necromancer, a professional exorcist qualified in all this stuff, knew how to bring a dead person back so that somebody could ask them a question. And th this necromancy is called, um, obviously, from the old words, but it's not unknown ever since because the Greeks and the Romans certainly uh, had quite a lot to do with, with all those things and later on in the world as well. So it's not an unknown thing, but the first evidence that we have is from this manual in Mesopotamia. And it's rather interesting how it worked because you had to get a skull. And I rather believe, although this is not stated, that you need to have the skull of the person you wanted to interrogate. Now that is not so difficult because in many periods, people lived in extensive housing built round a central courtyard and burials of family members might be under the floor of that courtyard, sometimes in a corbel tomb with plenty of room, sometimes individual burials there, but they knew where the dead were. And that is why the, the means of pouring food and drink down was in the same part of the house, because that, that, would, that it fits kind of sensibly like this. But I suppose if you wanted to ask your great grandfather who was going to win the Grand National, something of this crucial, crucial kind, if you're going to bet on a horse or something in the ancient equivalent of that, you'd get your grandfather's skull as the medium for communication. And then this professional person would come, no doubt with a lot of mumbo jumbo and um, incense burning and building up of atmosphere and everything, rub the skull with a kind of oil and then um, appeal to the sun god to bring up from below the spirit of the dead person to go into the skull and then use the skull to answer questions. So the client would then ask the, the dead person what he wanted to know and the dead person would then using the skull with a nice rattle of the teeth supposedly tell him the answer. So this is um, a dark activity which was not common in Mesopotamia and probably only done in circumstances of extreme need but the thing is that the, the spells that bring up the ghost are followed by quite a large number of rather powerful spells to send him back again as soon as possible because the last thing you want to do is unleash one of these things on a household or the street so that's how it worked so this is quite an interesting thing and the use of a skull in this in this way resurfaces um, later on in different cultures and even in the ones of the middle east so it was a well-known principle and i think when you read about it, it's one thing, but actually imagining doing it would be rather frightening, especially if the thing did appear to speak to you, you'd probably jump out of your skin. I mean, I don't know quite how, how that worked, but they, there were people who did this um, as, as a means of divination and clients paid them for the poor that served for you. You know, in the book, also in a lecture that I saw you give, I guess about a year and a half ago, 
that this survived long enough as a practice that it shows up in the Bible, the Witch of Endor. Well, the Witch of Endor, that is about a thousand BC, is it not? Mm -hmm. The approximate date for the time of David and, and, and Saul is around about a thousand BC. Well, the tablet with the necromancy is in fact later, it's about uh, the fifth century BC, but it was nothing new in Babylonia. I'm sure they've been doing it for centuries and centuries because we have texts that have the names of necromancers on them from that time. So yes, this is an interesting thing about the Witch of Endor because a lot of the stuff to do with um, devils, especially, and also related things like ghosts, were stamped out of the Old Testament by the editors who didn't like to give it any, any space. It was an abomination unto the Lord, as they described it, and they used euphemisms or they tried to crush down the mention. But it's obvious that the Canaanite populations that lived there before the arrival of the Hebrews, had the same range of activities, beliefs, superstitions, magic, and all the rest of it, as they did across the Middle East. So you can be quite certain of it. And one of the interesting things is this episode of the Witch of Endor, because it's a place in the north of Israel where uh, Saul, who was in trouble with the Philistines, went to find out what was going to happen because he thought it was all up with him, which in fact it was. And his job was to persuade this woman in charge to bring up the spirit of the prophet Samuel, who was already dead. It is an extraordinarily vivid description in the Bible, how he goes up the mountain with his assistants. And this woman, who's sometimes called the witch of Endor, but she wasn't a witch at all, brought up Samuel, who comes up and appears to Saul and says, what, why did you disturb me? And they have this conversation and he makes it clear that he is doomed. And then Samuel goes back down there. So the thing is, in that strange passage which survives in the Old Testament, there is an entrance to the underworld which goes down from which people can come up if they're summoned. And that is absolutely the same situation as existed in Mesopotamia. It's a very remarkable cross parallel of the two cultures. And even um, at the time of the arrival of the Hebrews and the fact that Saul had forbidden all this stuff, when it came to the punch, he didn't hesitate and up the mountain they went. Also, this poor woman is always called the Witch of Endor, but actually um, it's, it's rather remarkable that, that the word, um, her word in Hebrew is Ba'alat Ov, which means the mistress, the one in charge of ghosts. So she was the ghost mistress. She was not a witch. And the other interesting thing is that this place that went down to the underworld is called the Ain Dor in Hebrew, which means the well of generations. And I believe that the idea I mentioned before about the cycle of birth and death and life also existed in the Canaanite pre-Hebrew traditions, which were centered on that place. So when you put the two together, it is really rather remarkable but all the theologians in the world don't like this episode at all. They try and wiggle out of it. One of the things that uh, you, you mentioned the well of generation, also at various points in the book, you mentioned locations that are thought to be entrances to and exits from the underworld. Yes. Did this seem to have real world implications for the way that people navigated their geography? Or was it simply a given up? Oh, yeah, the entrance to the underworld's over there. Don't worry about it. 
The famous one in Mesopotamia was called Kutha, which is a real city mm -hmm. near Babylon. It's a real city. And in the story about Inanna, that's where she goes. She goes to Kutha and goes down there. And there, there are lots of other references in Mesopotamia. The, sometimes people say to the ghosts, don't, don't mess with me. I'm not going to Kutha. I'm not going to follow you. So it's a well-known reference that that was the entrance to the underworld. I don't think they had lots of them, but I imagine that the priests um, of Mesopotamia made a good living out of it because um, there were undoubtedly chapels and a big temple to the main underworld god and all manner of things around this place at Kutha where uh, with touts on the street selling you figurines and the things for eternal youth and all the rest of it as you find in the world ever since but that theologically that was where they believed the entrance of the underworld was whether anybody uh, explored it in the way that one would like to do now we don't know the fact is actually that this site of Kutha which is well known and important has never been properly excavated and if they found that temple they would probably find the structure which was considered to be the entrance of the underworld and the one in Endor must have been in the whole of, of Canaan the, their place where they thought entrance to the underworld existed Speaking of, you know, the uh, entrances of the underworld temples, you've got, I think, one of the most interesting stories in this book is about a prince who leads a not exactly uh, pious life oh, yeah. and has to go to a temple to essentially uh, try to make some sort of peace with the gods. I found this fascinating, both because you describe essentially a amalgamation of a number of different uh, religious beliefs from throughout the region in this, which suggests a lot of uh, transfer of religious yeah. concepts. Yeah. But also you discussed that there, you know, this may have been something that physically happened to him and that he may have gone to a temple and essentially been put through a ritual where he was confronted with the statues of various underworld deities and denizens while possibly under the influence of something or otherwise just being psychologically manipulated to make him very um, susceptible to this. Is this a type of uh, practice that might have happened from time to time to bring officials back into the fold or would this have been really unique? Well, you summarize it very aptly. Um, it, 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 you give a very accurate impression of what it's like. And I, I think it's the text which describes this episode is unique um, and there's nothing at all like it as a result i don't think it i don't believe it's a literary invention i think it was something some very complicated piece of internal political stuff where this prince was subjected to what he thought was going to be a genuine trip to the netherworld as a for a purgative reason whereas what he actually did was to be taken into a man-made thing where he thought it was the underworld and the whole matter is really rather dark and, as you say, manipulative. And I felt that at the heart of it was a kind of a Yago figure who had his own reasons for reinstating himself by winning the favour of this prince who theoretically one day should have become king himself. So the whole thing is rather murky, make a jolly complicated but good opera, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that it would. The author of the text, who you suggest may be the person who actually set this up, he describes the prince going out into the street, eating dust, and essentially doing a sort of penance. 
But then he also makes a statement to the effect of, and now that I've written this down, I am also forgiven and free. That's right. You know, the thing is this, when you have ancient inscriptions, the easiest thing to do is to read them and translate them into English, if it's English, with attention to grammar and vocabulary, so that you do a good job of translating the words into English. And this text has been translated more than once by different people, though the different lines, you might have a different opinion, but the basic story is there. But nobody before has tried to make it a living thing so you can understand what the heck is going on there. And when I read it and translated it, I, this, you know, it's not a poem, it's not a piece of literature. There's something under it. And when you look, start looking, there's something under it. There's a mind under it who, in my opinion, is a Yago type person. Because the wonderful thing about Shakespeare when, with all the th- things that happen in courts and the, 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 the great tragedies and the great dramas is that the, the people he describes are not figments of his imagination so much as examples of human beings in particular circumstances and how they behave. And um, once you conceive of, um, of, of a wastrel um, prince who has every advantage and exploits everything like mad for his own benefit and is led astray by this other villainous guy who's been defrocked before who then finds a way of exploiting all manner of stuff to get this back get to get the guy where he wants him on his knees so that he will be reinstituted as a savior and cost what it may to me once the 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 lines of this text it started to emerge as a human document as if it were say a play or or a novel but to do with real people it all hung together very lucidly in such a way that I think that's what it is. I think Shakespeare would have made a marvellous play out of that text. It would have been absolutely brilliant. It's a little late, but it's just the sort of narrative you could imagine soliloquies and speeches. And and then the, this poor prince is in front of the, the god of the underworld, absolutely terrifying, and he thinks he's going to go to perdition and then... And the goddesses get cross with him. And I mean, it's amazingly a frightening experience. And what comes out of it is, I wouldn't say that goes so far as to say that everything happened the way it was described. But what comes out of it is something oddly powerful as a human experience, rather like in a Shakespeare drama. It's something like that. It's very fascinating. So none of my colleagues yet have written me a letter to say, I don't believe a word of this or what a brilliant idea or anything in between. So I don't know if anybody else thinks it, but I worked on that text jolly hard for a jolly long time. And one of the things is if you have an idea, um, it's not that you convince yourself of something against your better judgment, but if you start to interpret things and then the other parts of it fit with the same picture, you suddenly feel you're dealing with a, a plausible thing, a plausible plot, so to speak. And it is a plot. One of the things that really uh, struck me as I was reading it was it, it reminded me, and I, if I recall correctly, I think you actually mentioned this. It reminded me in form, if not in content, of some of the mystery cult uh, traditions that came out of Rome. But also, I'm familiar with uh, some early 20th century writing on shamanic practices in North America, yes. where, again, the content's very different, but there does seem to be something very similar to what you're describing, where having people in a place where music and possibly plants, but definitely music and other things 
are influencing them, it will persuade them that, for example, statues have become an entity, things like that. Yes. I think myself that that, that text I translated it belongs in that world. And mm-hmm. you, you, you know, there, there was a place, I've forgotten exactly which island it was on, but where they had a structure where you could go down and that you could cross the river in a boat and you could see the gods in their niches and it was all there. And people went down there for the experience. And then it was all closed down until it was re-excavated in the early in the 20th century. I think it's quite likely, and in fact, I think it's very likely that there was some installation in Mesopotamia of that kind. And it may be that this text reflects it because the, the motives for such a thing, setting up such a thing and sponsoring it and encouraging people to use it are twofold because one of them can be genuine release from trauma, from sin, for, for um, well-being procurement, of course, which existed under different names in the ancient world as much as it does nowadays. So to, to get forgiveness for something, there might be some ritual under the ground that you have to go through. And of course, the other thing is the commercial side of it, because if, if you have a system that you could cross the sticks with a boat and speak to the Persephone or something, um, it's going to cost you $5,000, but of course you'll have a great time. People will pay the $5,000 just to do it. So I think that sort of thing probably also operated. And the Assyrian story that you, you brought up appears to be take place in a temple, but there are different features in the temple, and it's perfectly possible that there was a structure within it where you went down where the person thought they were really going into the underworld. It makes a lot of sense, really. Mm-hmm. And if you are a priest running such a thing, it would have clear advantages to you, um, as you point out, both financially and also as a way of convincing people to take your particular sect much more seriously. Well, absolutely. That's right. And buy all your magic figurines. and this, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's like a very intense version of Catholic confession. It is. Yes, I, I, I think perhaps some Catholic fathers would object to the analogy, but I think there, there, there is something like it. And what is fascinating to me is not so much that such a thing existed, but that it was orchestrated by someone who was actually a very dangerous criminal. So <laughs> yeah. I like this a lot. So if Al Capone was running a very intense oh, version God, of confession. <laughs> it'd probably still be give speakeasy a new, a new meaning, wouldn't it? Really? Indeed. I'm the son of a lawyer and I work with environmental law in my day-to-day life. Hmm. So as I'm reading this, I just kept thinking, wow, this all looks really familiar. This looks like it's laid out like legal code, both the, <laughs> if the city omen tables, the rituals for uh, exorcism read to me a lot like court pleadings. I found that really fr- fascinating. It's quite justified that you should have this feeling because people had their rights and ghosts had their rights and ghosts needed to be looked after and they got cross if they weren't. And people had their rights, which was that the ghosts would look after them and make sure no other ghosts came and all that kind of stuff. And when there was a breakdown, they, there was an appeal made to the sun god called Shamash, who, of course, crossed the heavens during the day and then during the night went under the earth. And while he was there, kept an eye on the underworld. And it was Shamash who was the arbiter. So if you felt that you'd done what you are supposed to do with regard to the ghosts and there was still a problem, they were still getting on your nerves, you turned to Shamash, you made a whole the offerings, you 
slid him a few gold coins and all this kind of stuff is hilarious really saying you know um i think it's about time you stood up for me here because i've done my stuff i've done my half of the contract um, i need you to clarify what's going on and the, you're right it does have a legal thing and i tell you the, it's not accidental because of course they had a highly developed sense of social law in Mesopotamia. they had law codes for example but also there are many legal documents where people like magistrates, say in the second millennium, arbitrated about dispute about payment, about debts that hadn't been paid, and they would have hearings and evidence of testimony would be taken. The judge, would, the magistrate would give a verdict and then the thing was written up and sealed by all the witnesses. You'd have been very much at home there. You would have recognised a whole over umbrella of legal procedure in many walks of life. And it is quite fascinating that uh, people who were witnesses they didn't just say i'm here but they had to put their seal on it and all that so if for example 20 years later someone said you know your dad never paid me for this garage i'm really fed up you know i want like they pull out the document and then if necessary they'd go and get one of the witnesses and he was there at the time and also the legal documents have built into them a care against loopholes because they were crafty um, the ancient Babylonians, they had crafty minds and imaginative minds. And when they made legal formulae in, in, in daily life, they avoided loopholes. And there's something a bit like that in these appeals to the sun god to get freedom from ghosts, because they list all the different things they've done. And there's no reason why they should, in, in the kind of aggrieved, um, I, I rest my case sort of way. So I'm, I'm amused that you picked up on that feeling, but it's quite correct. It's quite justified. You mentioned the uh, avoidance of loopholes, and if I understand correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but th there's the list of the types of entities and spirits that may be bothering me, and then at the end, and any other evil, and if I understand correctly, any other evil eventually became an entity in of itself. Is that correct? Yeah, this, this is something that should appeal to any lawyer, because it says whether you are a, and then there's about 10 or 15 different possible things. And originally somebody had the idea or any other evil as a catch-all. So if you'd forgotten one, it will be covered. And that's the sort of thing you get in contracts. You know, it's like, especially when you have a book published and you get this forbidding small print, which covers every kind of medium, including those not yet invented. <laughs> that kind of hanky-panky is a very Babylonian idea. So any other evil was the codicil to many lists of evil forces. But as you say, with the passage of time, something very peculiar happened because any other evil, if you imagine it in inverted commas, became in itself something which existed and which even could be modelled in clay in, in a ritual. So you could make a small thing of a lion-headed demon with special clothes on, and that was any other evil. So in English, it sounds ridiculous. You could draw any other evil or model any other evil, but that is, as you say, that's what happened. It, it moved from being a name to becoming an entity in itself. Quite an interesting shift. You know, and I remember in a talk you gave uh, online, uh, I think you did it on behalf of the British Museum, could be. You, you talked about any other evil. You shifted talking about uh, Pazuzu and how Pazuzu gets a really bad rap in uh, modern yes. Western culture. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other thing, because um, this horrible dread Lamashtu, who looked like a lioness with claws and wings and uh, talons and 
preyed on pregnant women and new babies and was the very, very, the most articulated of all the evil forces that people worried about. And because obviously many women died in childbirth or soon thereafter, or their babies did. So she, the Mashtu was that thing. And um, one of the ways you get rid of the Mashtu is you make a figurine or a carving or a drawing of this character called Pazuzu. And Pazuzu is a winged male, rather hideous looking face, distorted features, a sort of ape-like in some ways, grotesque fi figure. There's an interesting situation that if you exhibit this Pazuzu in one form or another in the bedroom, the Mashtu looks through the window and runs away immediately because she can't bear the sight of, of Pazuzu. They have a, some relationship between them that she's anathema to her, to this evil spirit goddess. So I came to the conclusion that they must have been married at one time and had a really, <laughs> really bad divorce, because if you've ever been in that position, that never leaves you, and that explains a lot. So I have a feeling, although I've never been able to prove it. But the thing is, that ghastly film called The Exorcist, which came out a long time ago, at the very beginning of it, there was a Pazuzu figure, which was supposed to be what drove that poor girl insane and possessed her and led to that ghastly film. And in fact, as I said, it was a gross slander because Pazuzu is on our side. And it's really unfair to have put him in through Hollywood in a position of being most culpable. And as I, as I remarked then, I would have thought a good lawyer or two could do something to rescue Pazuzu's name and claim damages. And since clearly the uh, people of Mesopotamia had good lawyers, uh, it's just unfortunate yes. they were dead by the time that the film I'm came out. I'm afraid they missed the boat. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I had one last question I wanted to ask, which is you discussed how the literary tradition may not actually reflect afterlife beliefs. The If a City Tablet, which uh, for listeners is a tablet of omens, because it was intended to be more of a utilitarian item, do you think that that better reflected the way that many people viewed the afterlife, even if in this case it was an afterlife gone wrong because the ghost is back? I, I, in a way, yes. I, I think there's something very matter of fact about those omens. It's not if you think you see a ghost or someone said they saw it. If, if you see a ghost in the bedroom, if you see it in the toilet, if you see it in the street, if it's wearing this, if it's that, if it's a man, if it's a woman, there's a whole load of details all laid out, predicated on the reality of seeing Goes. I think the, 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 the two points. One is that there's a huge number of these lines and they must have been collected and collected and collected together in order to make a, a, a table that where you could look things up. And seeing a ghost in itself was not necessarily really dangerous. If you saw a ghost and it spoke to you, that was very bad news. And if you saw a ghost repeatedly, that was also bad news. But if you saw one, I think I think this is the, 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 the leaving aside the um, the weight of written sources. I think what actually it was like was this: that if you saw a ghost when you're in your house, it, it would provoke reactions in you a bit like when you see a mouse. If you do in your house today, because it makes you jump like anything, and then you feel very irritable because you're going to have to do something about it, and also it's going to be expensive. So all those three things are come into your mind when you see a mouse in your kitchen, and. This, I think, was the same with the ghost situation. That It made you jump and made you defensive and worried. If it was a one-off, I think that was that. If it was repeated and repeated and became a nuisance, then 
you pass some kind of barrier when you have to get something done about it. And all the magic that we have is for people who've been repeatedly annoyed by a ghost and have come for help. So there is a period in between where one vision or maybe a few visions doesn't worry anybody so much. And most of those, if a hill omens that you referred to before, all the ones to do with ghosts are a bit like that. They're the seeing a ghost and the effects of it over a few days. And if it comes back and comes back, then it becomes something more serious. Nobody would say if you saw a ghost, you were going to die. Even if the exorcists record a line, you're going to die because they knew that wasn't the case because it didn't happen. So, you know, they also had a bit of um, reading between the lines. So what's the point of having the list of uh, omens if you can't actually do something about them? Well, I think the thing is that if you do go and see somebody, then they will try and find out more about the visitation, how often it was, who you saw, what they were like, what have you, as part of the process of getting rid of the ghost. And that also goes with that list. See, there's another thing that if you're the Babylonian army and you have a, a war in ancient Iran and kill a load of people there, and then you come home, well, those ghosts of those soldiers, they never got buried properly, they're not happy, they're going to come right after you and make life hell for you as well. So I think they had this thing in the background of, of the ghosts on a more cosmic le le level that could always be there. And it's, it's, a, funny, it's a funny thing to write about because it, it, it's such a long time ago. But the, all the stuff that I collected convinced me that, that the, the working situation there was that it was part of normal life and nobody doubted them. It was something you had to deal with when you had to deal with it. And, and that was that. The, the other thing about it is I know quite a lot of people who I've never seen a ghost myself. It's a source of mm. irritation to me, but I never have. But I know quite a lot of people who have seen ghosts. And um, some people who have seen ghosts feel rather shy and embarrassed and never talk about it, or they're not quite sure whether they did or whether they had some brain thing or something like that. But actually, a very high proportion of people have this experience. And I think if you have, and you find out that all this situation was up and running in a rather familiar way all that time ago up to 5,000 years ago it's rather an comforting thought mm -hmm. that you're not alone in the modern world in the bleak thing but a lot of people have had these ideas before you and maybe they did see them too I found that when I uh, talk about ghosts with people well I myself you know like you I've never seen one I don't know that I believe in them but the fact that I'm not going to be judgmental towards somebody who says they've experienced one tends to bring out a willingness to discuss things and people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, I, I wrote this book as if I, I was, as it were, from the Babylonian point of view, without saying every five minutes, if they saw them or if they really saw it. Nothing near here. I tried to do it from the inside. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm determined what, sooner or later, and the Bishop Museum is full of stiffs, and it stands to reason there are lots of ghosts elsewhere in the building, but I've never seen one. I, I don't know what I'm going to have to do. I actually it's know a of a number of ghost stories related to the British Museum. Yeah, so, there are. There's a yeah. little book there's a little book about them. It, it, it is a very remarkable thing. There's so much in this book. It's extremely well written, very enjoyable to read, but it is very dense with information, so I would recommend anybody who's listening buy a copy it's available pretty much everywhere right now so before we get off i wanted to ask you about two things not related to this book though yeah the first i have a friend who runs a game store so she would be quite upset with me if i didn't ask you about the reconstruction 
of the Royal Game of Ur, which is one of the things that you are known yes. for. Yes. Well, that's a very complicated map because the Royal Game of Ur, archaeologically, we can see it from the beginning of the third millennium in ancient Iraq. And then it lasted down to about the first century AD when it was replaced by backgammon. So it had a 3000 year run and archaeology has provided boards and dice and pieces, although not always together, scattered throughout that long period of time. So archaeologically, there's quite a lot of evidence. And it was played all over the Middle Eastern world as well. So it's a big project, but it was an ancient game already by the second century BC, when an astronomer in Babylon in 177 BC wrote a tablet about this game and how to play it from an astronomer's point of view. So there's a tablet of what we would call rules written in cuneiform in 177 BC. It tells you about the pieces and it tells you that there are marked squares which are fortunate. And it tells you a few other things, but it doesn't tell you the direction of play because you have to know that already because what he was doing was describing a more sophisticated game played on the board, which for many, many centuries had been used for a simpler version of the same kind of game. So what you're dealing with here is a complex of information. So for example, in the graves of Ur from the mid third millennium, about 2500 BC, you had seven pieces. Each player had seven pieces, you had dice, and you had a race round a track where one came in from one side and one the other, up the middle and off the end. It was a race game and possession of squares meant that you couldn't be knocked off and the usual kind of stuff. And a good race game, which um, uh, people still play with some enthusiasm. And right at the end of all that time later, when this astronomer got to work, he wrote about a game where there were five pieces, not seven, and they were all different one to the other. They had different powers and you had to have different scores to get them on the board and they won different numbers of things. So th there was an accretion on top of the original race game, which I think was still generically the same kind of principle, but making sense of it is very complicated, especially as this, that by the time the rules are written, you have one wing of four squares and another wing of four squares, and between them, an avenue of 12 squares. So that makes 20 altogether, 12 plus four plus four. And the 12 squares up the middle are a slight evolution from what it was at the beginning. Now, when you have 12 squares in a row and you're an astronomer, you naturally assume them to be the signs of the zodiac and the pieces to be the planets. So when he wrote his rules, it's all about the movement of the visible planets in the heavens laid on top of the board game. So it is a hair-pulling complexity to be absolutely sure how it worked. And it is possible, although I'm not certain, that there might have been two different games played in those rules in the late period. So there you are. That's something I've been working on endlessly ever since and still am. But the generic game played by the Sumerians, which we can deduce on the basis of the pieces and dice and the shape of the board, is a classic race game, which has all the classic examples of a good race game, which has lasted like Ludo and things like that, when you go around the track and you can knock off your opponent. It's a very fascinating matter. You know, Tutankhamun, the Egyptian pharaoh, had a board for this game and um, it was played all around the middle. It's an amazing, amazing story. And you need a hundred lifetimes to work it all out. 
one other thing you're involved with that I actually found because I'm trained as an archaeologist and hunter-gatherer, so I always look at very accretions of essentially the common people rather than the elites. Yes, yes. I was fascinated by the idea behind a project you're involved in, the Great Diary Project. Oh, yes. That's very close to my heart. Well, this was an example of somebody having a good idea, and instead of saying, as you usually do, somebody ought to do this, I did it. It's the only time I can claim I've ever actually done it. And my idea was to create a resource to rescue the diaries of normal human beings in families where people didn't want them. Because uh, when you have a grandmother who might have 76 diaries from girlhood to old age and she passes away, nobody in the family can read the handwriting and it's often got spiders in it and they don't know what to do with it. And sometimes they put them in the loft and sometimes they put them in the garage, but sooner or later, they very often get thrown away, especially when people live in very small apartments with no room for anything. And this applies in America as much as it does in England. And my idea was to set up a thing called the Great Diary Project, where we would take and look after for the future, unwanted, normal family diaries. And it turned out to be a a God-given conception, because we have to date about 12,000 manuscript diaries that have come. They're now in a library in London called Bishopsgate Institute. And there's a lady called Dr. Polly North, and she's in charge of looking after the collection and boxing it and looking after it like that. And people bring them all the time. And the, the idea was that if you didn't, we don't want to take people's diaries if they want them, but if they don't know what to do with them, we take them. And the minute we started this, it worked. And sometimes I had a phone call in the museum. Sometimes, oh, hello, is that Dr. Finkel speaking? Yes, yes. My sister, uh, Emily, and I, we've each kept a diary for 93 years each. That's 186 years. And we've never known what to do with them. So we're so glad about... And that happened all the time. And lots of people wrote and said, this is such a relief because we didn't want to throw these diaries away. We never knew... And so they come hand over fist and they're from the 18th, 19th and 20th and 21st centuries. And we take absolutely anything. So if you have one diary with um, only one line in which says, I hate dentists, it doesn't matter. We will take them because my idea was, and it's being vindicated, is that they're full of treasure about everyday life, which is otherwise ignored. Because historians all over the world are interested in kings and for some God-benighted reason, politicians who are the least interesting species (laughs) in the universe. And they don't really care about human beings because politicians don't care about normal human beings. But human beings' voices in diaries are marvellous because people write without anybody looking over their shoulder to say, "Mm, your spelling's a little off or can you be a bit more precise about this? They just write what they want to write. And sometimes they do it for a whole lifetime. And you get people who, somebody died recently who was alive when the Wright brothers got off the ground in their first aircraft and died recently. I mean, think of that span of time. And so I think they're marvellous, these diaries. And we, we look after them. We don't read them to be nosy. We just rescue them for the long-term future. And there should be something like that in America mm-hmm. because America is a diary country. And many people started diaries for religious and ethical reasons, and then they wrote them for other reasons. And it's, America is one of the major diary countries. And there should be somewhere where they are all kept for the future. It's the most much more interesting than cuneiform tablets. Even. Yeah, again, as somebody who's, um, you know, 
my career in archaeology was focused on common people in a given society. When I read about the Great Diary Project, I immediately thought, that's exactly what I want to see. <laughs> it is it's such a rich thing. And you have old ladies and you have teenagers and you have antisocial people. And, and I mean, it, it's, people often say, if you have normal diaries, it's just about going shopping and washing your hair. But there's nothing further from the truth. It is absolutely marvelous. I'd strongly recommend it. I mean, I don't know how it could be done because I know lots of American universities collect diaries in a desultory sort of way. But the, the, the idea of a national repository where somebody who has these things and doesn't know what to do with them, this is a very good idea because university librarians are often rather sniffy about diaries that doesn't look very interesting to me but actually you can't judge what is interesting you can't judge it at all and i take the long-term view like two or three hundred years time those diaries will be gold dust they will be absolute gold dust. it's a good idea i think is there anything else that you'd want to talk about before we complete the uh two small things about the ghost book one is that um in october there'll be a paperback so that is um, a useful thing. I think that I don't know how many of the hardbacks are left in England, but they're going to be a paperback. They're working on it. And the other thing is in the in the book, you probably saw there was a, a tablet with a drawing of a ghost on. Yes. And the marvelous thing was that um, it's a very big ritual. You made a model of the ghost and a model of a lover who's going to take him back to the underworld and live with him happily ever after. And the drawing of the ghost shows a tall, thin old man with his hands tied in front of him. Now, the thing is, when I wrote this book, I claim this was the oldest picture of a ghost in the world. It must be. It's third century BC. But who else is going to have an early? Because it's labelled. We know it's a ghost. So we've got them pinned to the ground with this statement. And guess what? It's going to be in the next edition of the Guinness Book of Records as the world's <laughs> oldest drawing of ghosts. How do you like that? No other cuneiform tablet is in that book. How do you like that? That is excellent. I love that. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, and the, the ritual described in that tablet, I was really fascinated. You have the... It's priceless, isn't it? Yeah. You, you create the figurine, which will both be the lover of the ghost, but also essentially their prison warden and i just right. like, exactly. well, i know some people who'd probably be really into that <laughs> <laughs> bravo bravo well, marvelous thank you very much for your time i really appreciate it it's a pleasure i'm glad we talked when you come to london come and see me in the bm i will be a big be great all right be well man I would once again like to thank Dr. Irving Finkel for giving me his time and being willing to participate in this interview. His book, The First Ghosts, is available both in bookstores and online, and his previous book, The Ark Before Noah, is also a quite delightful read and one you might want to check out if you find yourself enjoying his writing. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky. <laughs>